0: American freedom is secured by the commitment of our courts and our people to the rule of law. National Review's The McCarthy Report offers listeners in-depth analysis on the most pressing legal questions facing the country. Alongside National Review Editor-in-Chief Rich Lowry, veteran prosecutor and law professor Andy McCarthy leverages his decades of legal experience to cut through the noise of media hysteria with sober-minded, thoughtful commentary. Tune in to The McCarthy Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows.
1: Social media companies in the dock, and E.G. Carroll hits the jackpot. We'll discuss all this more. On this edition of The Editors, I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie, Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D., Michael Brennan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are the podcast How the World Works and Bound by Oath. More about both of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we had these social media hearings where Mark Zuckerberg was the star witness and Josh Hawley, who generally I'm not a huge fan of Josh Hawley, but I think he had the most effective five minutes interrogating a congressional witness since Elise Stefanik and the Ivy League Presidents, there's always uh, when you quote unquote own someone this way, there's always an element, uh, you know, of unfairness and badgering, or, or there usually is, and that was present here. But he had Zuckerberg on his back foot. He was uh, blinking and licking his lips, and then really was pressured and forced into standing up in a dramatic moment and apologizing to these parents sitting behind him of um, victims of various forms of online um, abuse. What do you make of it
2: um, you know it was a little unfair to Zuckerberg uh, as you said it um, but it was a dramatic moment I mean the stories of some of those victims are horrible I mean you know uh, it's true that um, you know some some young girls have had you know pornographic images or just images of themselves naked uploaded and distributed on social media and then they take their lives um out of the humiliation that that causes or their lives are just permanently scarred by it um and um you know of course if if you're asked how much child sexual abuse material is acceptable on facebook the answer should be zero uh and um and that's true. It's not necessarily Mark Zuckerberg's fault that that material appeared on Facebook. Um, and you have to, you know, I, I think you have to judge whether Facebook took reasonable steps to prevent that material from being uploaded and from being spread by the algorithm when it was. Um, I think in some cases they took great steps to to prevent that. And in some cases they've made mistakes um you know this is separate from you know my views about facebook more generally so i thought it was unfair but it was dramatic and it it illustrated i think a larger point a a political point which i think is that there is a growing uh an emergent policy consensus on the hill that social media is bad for teenagers and maybe should be restricted from them in a serious way. And having seen state age limit laws on pornographic sites uh, start to actually work uh, and be really effective, um, Congress has more of an appetite, I think, now to experiment with this than they ever have before, where previously it was considered a totally... Fruitless enterprise that you know, you, you'll just kids will just figure out a way around them, parents will help them around any regulation. Um, now I think uh, at least Congress is is willing itself to try. Um, so we'll see. It was, it was, a, it was a dramatic moment, and it goes, it speaks to the way that Silicon Valley has like lost so much luster mm-hmm. in the last decade. I mean, it, first with the left after. Trump and Brexit uh, after it was decided that Silicon Valley was somehow to blame for the, for those elections, uh, which I don't think was fair either. Um, Silicon Valley was just reflecting what was actually happening in the real world. Um, and now the rights come in with, um, as, uh, child sex abuse has become like a, a huge issue on the right. And, um, and, you know, they're taking the hide out of, Zuckerberg now,
1: yeah. So, Maddie, I, I think you know there's this constant back and forth about how many safety officers Facebook has, and there's this email from uh, this guy Nick Nick Clegg, is that his name, uh, saying you know I, I need 50 safety officers, and Zuckerberg say no, we're not going to do that, and just to me that seems mostly ir- irrelevant. It's it's the medium of itself that is, is likely uh, harmful to teens, and I, I say likely, Jonathan Haidt has uh, been on this case for years now. And it, it certainly, you know, there may be confounding variables or something else going on, but it, it certainly seems to line up pretty well with the ubiquity of social media, the rise of the ubiquity of social media with this in- incredible... Rise and at least self-reported uh, depression and anxiety among teenagers, especially girls, and not just self-reports. You know, there, there's there, there are also more suicide attempts and hospital visits for for self-harm. Maybe something else is going on, but it seems likely this this is the the culprit or the main culprit. And I was looking at something last night. I think. From kids thirteen to seventeen, like ninety five percent are on social media. There, in theory, there's supposed to be a ban, so you're you can't get on when you're under age thirteen. But about forty percent of eight to twelve year olds report being on social media as well.
3: Yeah, so I think this actually came up when Zuckerberg uh, suggested that the bulk of scientific evidence does not support the idea that there's a, a direct causal relationship between social media use and and mental, teen mental health issues. And this was something I think Holly challenged uh, quite effectively. And you mentioned Jonathan Haidt, and he he's pointed out that part of the problem with these scientific studies that suggest there's, there's maybe not a problem is that they define their terms so broadly. So it would be kind of like defining candy uh, to include vegetables and saying that, like, oh, yeah, if you if you live only on candy or if you consume too much candy then it's, it's actually not harmful because you're including all these these other things. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... So, it's so
1: those studies include other forms of screen, you know, watching TV.
3: Exactly, yeah, mm-hmm. which can make, which are not the, the things that people are objecting to. They're not objecting to the use of screens for educational purposes or the internet as a source of information or, or a source of connection. They're, they're objecting to this, you know, unwanted sexual advances or the types of content that produces uh, ill mental health effects. Um, so, you know, you had the, the Instagram whistleblower case a while ago of, you know, it was like 37% of Instagram users between ages 13 and 15 had en- encountered unwanted nudity in the previous seven days. 24% had encountered unwanted sexual advances, which, again, suggests that they know this is a problem. They know this is going on. And, uh, you know, Michael says it's it, it was unfair. I don't know if it was unfair. I think it was, I think it was over the top. I mean... Uh, you know, had Senator Marsha Blackburn saying um, that Zuckerberg's trying to be the premier sex trafficking site in the country. That's obviously a bit overblown. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham saying he has blood on his hands. But this is a this is a big problem, and I think something Jonathan Haidt says a lot when people say, "Oh, but it's it's not been proven to be causal." It's he says, "Well, okay, if you look at the 2010s, you see this huge uptick in suicidality, mental health problems in teenagers." do you have another explanation for what it could possibly be? And his critics generally don't, to be honest. They they sometimes say things like, oh, well, eh, maybe climate change or or something like that. But then it's like, well, OK, but how are kids learning about climate change? How are they becoming obsessed about climate change? Could that be TikTok? Could that be social media? Most likely. I mean, my experience anecdotally of, of interviewing parents whose children have come or started identifying as transgender and, and gone down this this very depressive uh, anxiety ridden rabbit hole is that it the social media has a huge role to play These are often isolated kids vulnerable kids um, they end up finding this like online community some of whom are adults um, that having sort of these cyber relationships that wouldn't existed wouldn't have existed in any other context um, and, you know, you could make the argument that, OK, but it's up to parents to police that. And if parents want to decide that they can't have phones, then they, they have that power. But, you know, not everybody actually does have that power. I was thinking of of uh, one parent I interviewed whose daughter had decided she was really a boy and then um, ultimately took her own life. And uh, social media we had a huge part playing in her story. But this this woman was an immigrant. She was a single mom. She had four kids. She had no choice but to send her daughter to public school, um, where all all the peers are also very online. Um, and you do think, like, could could somebody like that benefit from uh, regulation, which which takes this mm-hmm. product that's suspected, very strongly suspected to be dangerous for for kids for teenagers, and makes it a little bit harder for them to access it? And I think probably yes, probably mm-hmm. the, the government could help.
1: Yeah, p- parents of teens just always, always say it's so hard because all the te- other teenagers are are on it. Charlie?
0: I think that this was a repellent example of cynical, tech illiterate, populist demagoguery. And that Josh Hawley should be ashamed (laughs) of himself. I do. I think this was an example of problems that are the product of irrepressible technological change being blamed on the people who designed the core systems that undergird those changes rather than those who abuse them or who are responsible for monitoring abuse. Now, I have no doubt that social media is bad for kids. We can stipulate that. I don't think that's the question here, though. I personally work hard to keep my kids away from social media. I've locked down the family computer and their devices, the Apple TV. But I don't think the problem here is Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or Sergey Brin or anyone in that mold. I read an AP story yesterday, which starts like this. Just bring this up. Sexual predators, addictive features, suicide and eating disorders, unrealistic beauty standards, bullying. These are just some of the issues young people are dealing with on social media, and children's advocates and lawmakers say companies are not doing enough to protect them. It's the last sentence there that's the problem, not doing enough to protect them. The AP story has a quote from Dick Durbin, senator from Illinois, a Democrat. They are responsible for many of the dangers our children face online. Their design choices, their failures to adequately invest in trust and safety, their constant pursuit of engagement and profit over basic safety have all put our kids and grandkids at risk. I just don't think that's true. I'm sure it helps the career of Josh Hawley to ask whether or not he's personally compensated the families, whether he apologizes. But this is not a design choice so much as it's a result of the way the internet works, which in America is extremely open. And the thing is, Americans want to keep it that way. The moment companies start spying, people get angry. The moment companies start deciding what can and can't be said, you see a backlash, often from the same people involved in this, Circus Act. The other case against big tech that I hear all the time is it's intrusive. Barack Obama was killed in the polls, I think quite rightly, for the metadata inspection. Americans don't like the negative consequences of social media, and I don't either. But they also hate any of the things that we would need to do to fix it. So what do we do? Instead of having a serious conversation about those trade offs, We put Mark Zuckerberg in front of Congress and pretend that these issues are the product of choices that he has made to make more money. And it's just not true.
1: All right, so MBD, instead of asking you directly to tangle with Charlie, I'm going to ask the exit question, which will have great implications for uh, the different views uh, of this of this matter, and that question is if you 're in Congress and a bill was advanced may, maybe you'd maybe you 'd draft it maybe I should ask whether you 'd draft it i 'm just going to ask whether you 'd vote for it if someone else drafted it a ban on kids under age eighteen using Social media, and let's stipulate it's it's a intelligently written bill. It's what Yuval Levin, and others have set out. You'd have real age verification. You'd have uh, real teeth in in the bill and punishment for companies w- working around it. And you'd have an opt in for parents who who really want their kids to be uh, on on social media when they're younger than age eighteen. Would you vote for that bill?
2: Um, you, I think usually they've been framed as at sixteen, which I would definitely which I would support 18 feels a little bit dramatic. Um, you know, I understand it fits with other age of majority um, lines already, but um, if you can drive, a, I, I think if you can drive a, you know, two ton vehicle, you can have an Instagram account. Uh, That's the it's at the age of 16.
1: All right. So you offer an amendment to do it at 16, Maddie.
3: Um, yeah. At 16, I think, I think I would vote for that.
1: Charlie, assume you're a no. Well,
0: I'm a no, not because I don't think that there is a bright line to be drawn between minors and adults. I am a classical liberal who leans libertarian when it comes to the rights and responsibilities of adults. I don't extend that to children. I am a no because there is no technological way to achieve that without materially damaging the internet and access to it for everyone. I don't want to see... Those powers being granted to Congress.
1: I'd- so how how would how would such a uh, you know th- in theory there's a ban at age 13. It is not you know it's kind of meaningless. But why would um, why would a ban at 16 or 18 materially harm the, the rest of the internet? Well, because or, or
0: the way that you would verify the age of potential social media users would apply to everyone by definition the computer doesn't know how old you are. It's not as if mm-hmm. it scans your face, heaven forfend, and determines how old you are. So a 50-year-old would be subject to the same restrictions as an eight-year-old. That's how it would work. If you look back to the creation of the internet and then the World Wide Web, the whole point in it is that the Backbone systems, DNS, HTML, HTTP, and HTTPS are accessible to anyone. You can quite literally plug a computer into your home internet connection, root a domain name to the IP address, install a server of some sort on that machine, and share your thoughts or whatever it is with the world the moment we start getting into this territory we're determining which websites are and are not subject to age verification which is draconian regulation and we are making everyone who engages with some of the most popular sites in the world give their personal information over the only way you could do this is to have it reviewed much as you have to when you open a bank account. I can see the case for it in banking. I think on the internet, that's a disaster. It's also a security nightmare because that has to be stored, at least temporarily, somewhere. This would materially change the way the internet works. I'm not denying that there is a problem here. I just think this so-called solution is is a, 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 a sea change that people ought to think much more carefully about. And I do think that this question is really one that ought to be posed to parents and hopefully fixed with free market solutions where parents are made much more aware of the dangers that their children face and they are therefore expected to monitor their use more closely themselves or install software on their devices to do that, not at the central level mandated by law.
2: So I can. i just want to jump in, just on two things, Charlie. I agree with you. I I want to see more. I want to do. I do want to see more products offered to parents. And uh, you know, you and I know how to, you know, run a home server and block access. You know, at the home level, to a lot of you know unsavory content. I'd love to see products that made it easier to do that on. Um, A cell phone that's just connecting to the local, you know, 5G network. Um, Make that easier for parents to do on their kids' phones when they're teenagers. But I'm curious about these laws in Utah and Arkansas that have been passed on pornography sites that require users to give a legal ID. And it drove MindGeek, you know, one of the biggest sites on the internet, you're right, to... To block access in some of those states. Um, you know, in the case of pornography, I mean, the fact that there's a security issue that MindGeek would hold the uh personal ID, I mean, that's a it's almost like an enhancing feature of the law, <laughs> an enhancing way of dissuading people from using these uh sites that are socially destructive. Um So, I I mean, I think that's why these things are coming up because there's, at least for now, Arkansas's legislators seem happy with the results they've had on... Sure. And they fundamentally changed the
0: internet in those states. I'm not suggesting that you can't do it. You could also cut access to the internet in Utah and Arkansas, and that would work too. But it would change the way that our information flows in the United States. And I think we ought to be... skeptical toward that.
2: No, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I I, I I think there's been, you know, there's a lot of deep thought on this now because, you know, China has its own lockdown internet. Russia kind of has its own internet world. It's almost like they're, we're dividing the internet into, uh, n- you know, 1984's civilizational spheres. Uh, even Europe. How it's going.
0: Even Europe. The United States is an outlier once again.
2: Right. And like, I, you know, I, I support in some ways, like, um, our, my old friend, James Poulos advocates for a second amendment to compute, um, like a, a right for Americans to use computer technology and not just to, um, uh, and use it themselves, not just have large companies use it for them, um, as mediators. But I think, you know, I think you can do age regulations on these things, Legally, and I don't know if it totally disrupts the internet to do that. Um,
1: so I would I would vote for such a thing pretty much without he- hesitation. Char- Charlie's created some hesitation, but assuming that <clears throat> the age verification can be done in some plausible um, way, Yvonne and uh, this guy Chris Griswold, who wrote a big piece for National Affairs on, on this, have an idea involving the Social Security administration where the uh, the companies would just it, it would just get the the age verification i don't know whether that's actually workable they they think it is, but I just think this is kind of out of control for for parents and and um, they they need something that that uh, tips the balance more in their their favor and uh, again uh, you know I'm enough of a libertarian to say they, they should be able to opt into it and get their kids on Instagram at age fifteen if they want to um, but the norm should be no and I just think this is a vast psychological and emotional experience that's been, um, you know, through through no one's uh, volition really been um, visited upon our teenagers and the outcome has has not been healthy. And we find if 10 years from now the mental health crisis was driven by something else, you know, let, let's get the 15-year-olds back on Instagram. So but uh, I, I just think the, the loss to teenagers of not being on Instagram or TikTok and Snapchat, it's not like we're denying them, you know, the the collected volumes of Shakespeare Uh, it's they they 10 years ago or so they're perfectly fine and more fine in fact without this and I think they'd be fine uh, without it again at least let's run that experiment well
0: and then when it turns out that children who want to bully one another stop using Facebook and Instagram and instead just send their harsh words or photographs via email or via text message, are we going to start locking that down as well? Or perhaps we could have Washington, D.C. super intend Minecraft where people talk to one another or Call of Duty. I mean, there's just no way of preventing the transfer of information across the internet between people who wish to talk to each other. And I see no limiting principle here whatsoever that wouldn't turn the internet into this walled off environment in which to get so much as a Gmail account, you have to put in an ID.
2: But uh, Charlie, you know, you could have, I don't think it is this limitless thing. I mean, the, the technologies themselves suggest how they'd be used. I mean, it is true that like I could, Technically, set up a multi-party phone call, on which you know, and then call someone in my in class and say you're fat in front of twenty eight other people on the phone call, but nobody really ever did that (laughs) before because it takes extraordinarily. Well, they did it. There's been
1: been bullying since time immemorial. It's just the evidence is that this this form of media is um, amplifies it. Uh, It's addictive. It drives obsessions and insecurities. So that's why, you know, I I think if you do a slippery slope argument, why are we stopping kids from seeing R-rated movies, you know? Uh, Why why do we want to stop them from seeing... I don't understand
0: how that's possibly a slippery slope argument from what I'm saying.
1: But why
0: not? Because if you give a child a phone... They, by definition, have a connection to other people. There are a million ways by which other people can convey information to them. That's not an analog of going into a movie theater when you're underage. I don't understand how but, those two but things the, are But the
1: principle that we try to keep children from certain activities and content that are appropriate for adults is, I've conceded is one of the
0: principle well, at the well start. established. I agree. I conceded the principle at the start. The principle is that. Minors should be treated differently than adults. I agree. Uh, I don't think there are very
1: many. So, is it just a experience. practical, a practical concern that it it would be impossible to do it in a way? So, well, let, it, let's it, say it, it's you difficult. Could do this without changing the internet, would you do it? I guess. But you a, can't. That, that's like
0: saying, well, you know, if you could put a camera in every house to stop domestic violence without impinging on people's privacy, would you do it? That isn't possible. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is not that it is impossible to lock down the internet in this way, although there will be lots of ways around it, but you will raise the cost of using certain sites, of course. But I am saying that doing this fundamentally changes the character of the internet, because if you have conceded the premise that everyone, not just minors, and that's of course how this has to work, that everyone, if they are to use a service that the government either believes is inappropriate for minors or could be used for bullying, that everyone has to put in verification, whether that's a ID or a credit card or a social security number or whatever, then you have... Changed the way that the vast majority of websites, which are by definition or services, definition used to move information around, work. You're good. I don't okay, know okay, the sorry. exact list of what it is, but I would propose that that the the most visited websites in the world have to be you know, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Gmail, MindGeek. You know, my whatever these are, they're going to be the most visited you are changing an enormous amount of web traffic. You're also yeah, catching so up
1: small... But, but, Go on. So, so if it became more difficult for adults to get on Instagram, that, that also doesn't seem like a huge, a huge price.
0: If you believe well, that the purpose of the internet is to be open and free of government control and that it is a problem when information is interdicted or superintended by Congress... Then it's a pretty massive problem,
2: yeah. Charlie, just just two two other questions, um, not particularly hostile. One: Do you th- think that the demand for that being expressed here for some kind of control or protection for children? Do you think it could lead to an age verification system based on on technology that, like Apple uses with Apple Pay, where there's anonymized tokens that verify, um, you know, without necessarily compromising your identity for long, uh, the whole way through.
0: I'm sure that there would be a nice, neat, minimally invasive technological way of doing it, but it wouldn't change the fact that you are altering the free and open web. And look, I'm a, I'm a tech hippie in this regard. I'm not as old as those who agree with me on this, usually. But I had a modem when I was nine. I put up my first website when I was 10. I remember what the internet was like in 1994. And it was glorious. And over time, two things have happened, both of which I find distasteful, only one of which I think is the role of government to avoid. The first one is that we have seen massive centralization, but that has largely been the product of consumer choice. People seem to want to have centralized email systems, for example. The popularity of Gmail or Yahoo are good examples of that. I personally like the decentralized internet. Most people don't. Fair enough, that's consumer choice. The second is the tendency towards this sort of lockdown uh, temptation, which we've seen grow, obviously, in totalitarian states and to a lesser extent in... Europe, and we're now seeing pop up in America. And I would predict that I am going to lose this, that we are going to see a fundamental change in the way that the internet works, that people will profoundly regret. And by the time they regret it, it will be too late.
1: All right, so let's move on before we blow up the whole podcast with this and hear from our first sponsor this episode. Our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute are back with new episodes of their Breakout How the World Works podcast, hosted by author and political commentator Kevin Williamson. If you're not already listening to the show, each episode, Kevin sits down with notable guests for candid conversations about the jobs they've had and the role of work in the economy and our social lives, from flipping burgers and tending pigs on a farm to leading special ops missions in far corners of the globe. Some of America's best thinkers discuss the jobs they've had that informed their outlook on life and future careers. In a recent episode, Kevin sat down with Jonah Goldberg, both of whom, of course, are old friends and colleagues of us here at NR, for a fascinating conversation about the ins and outs of Jonah's decades-long career in the media. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash howtheworldworks. That's cei.org slash howtheworldworks. So, Maddie, we had a big verdict the other day in this E. Jean Carroll defamation case. This is a second trial and the second one that Trump has lost. He lost initially a trial about whether he uh, was guilty in a civil sense of this alleged sexual sexual assault that happened sometime about 30 years ago. E. Jean Carroll cannot remember what what year it was, supposedly in a dressing room in Bergdorf, a huge department store on Fifth Avenue. And Trump uh, uh, r- has continually denied this and called E. Jean Carroll all sorts of names, which created this defamation suit. And although the, the penalty in the initial <laughs> trial was $5 million for, for the sexual assault, this jury went, went uh, way out there and said the, the damages for the the defamation is much, much more than that, $83.3 million. What do you make of it?
3: Yeah, so we typically think sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. But in this case, words are apparently 16 times more damaging than even sexual assault. So it really is a absolutely whopping um, figure. I mean, funnily enough, Trump's, Problem, which is uh, lack of self-restraint and inability to sh- sh- shut his mouth, basically, It seems to be the same problem that oftentimes his his enemies have. And I think that while um, obviously he was effectively muzzled in the second trial by the judge, um, but in the first first trial and before the first trial, he he obviously didn't show up to the first trial. But before that, he was he was running off his mouth multiple times, um, no, running the risk that there was going to be. Lawsuits for, for defamation, and that's obviously exactly what happened. But I do think since this most recent verdict, um, really it's possibly Eugene Carroll who's been showing up a little too much and, and running her mouth. I mean, the, the media tour I don't think has done her any mm-hmm. favors.
1: In offering to, to take Rachel Maddow ship, uh, fishing in France. Okay
3: yeah very strange. I mean she's she's kind of an eccentric person we we know that already there was that um 2019 interview she did with Anderson Cooper and made him sort of visibly cringe when she um, suggested that that rape uh, is is most people think of rape as something sexy um and she she has just she's talked about this with with a degree of flippancy that would not have been used to persuade a jury and and therefore really is not not advisable when trying to persuade the the court of um, public opinion. So, I mean, Trump seems to have so far kind of been reined in a bit um, by this by this figure and has, has so far kept his mouth shut, has um, indicated that he intends to appeal, and as Andy McCarthy has has suggested or implied, he could have a decent shot of that. I mean, the evidence uh, to to convict, obviously this was a civil case, but the evidence gets him was underwhelming, um, not least because Eugene Carroll can't remember uh, the specifics of of when when this happened. Um, so yeah, I mean we'll we'll see we'll see how he gets on with the appeal, but he just has to keep a tight lip from now on if he if he wants to not avoid more uh, more defamation cases.
1: Yeah so MBD, you know, it's it's really impossible to know what happened. 30 years ago, uh, you wouldn't put <clears throat> necessarily anything past Trump, although this does not really fit his pattern. His pattern, which was uh, not, not good, was groping, uh, kissing, un- unwanted, you know, sudden kisses in an elevator, that kind of thing, and ogling the, the girls in the dressing room for his various uh, uh, beauty contests. Um, but, you know, this obviously, he, he didn't show up for the, the first trial, and then he gets the the uh, you know the guilty verdict locked in there and 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 then he you know in, inveighs against it and uh because that first verdict's already locked in in part who knows you know may have gone the same way even if he showed up, but in part because he he blew it off then then he can't you know bring up whether he's guilty or not in in this this trial and the the jury didn't like him very much clearly
2: no they didn't, and you know this is what I think this- <laughs> this is what the system in New York was designed to do to him in a way, uh, with his political unpopularity. It was easy to get a jury that could agree to a crazy number like this. (coughs) Also, you know, there's real questions about the competence of Trump's counsel, right? I mean, um, He fired, he's obviously letting go of uh, Alina who represented him in this trial as he moves on towards an appeal phase.
1: He had a pretty Um, good lawyer in the first one.
2: Yeah. uh, Takapina. Takapina is a great lawyer, but Trump's had problems keeping counsel because he has a tendency not to pay them (laughs) um, on time. And he's going to have trouble getting counsel unless they secure money in cash in advance in, uh, and, um, you know, he has a reputation and he has a ton of lawsuits to deal with. I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, several felonies and what 90, I mean, we're, we're now that the verdicts are coming in, we're lowering the number of charges altogether, but still has about 80 charges left. Um, so, um, this has been, bad for him at least on the level of you know soaking up time attention and monetary resources that he would otherwise put into campaigning for president um obviously like the legal persecution measurably helped him in the republican primary i but i think it's a it's a total drag on him as a general election candidate because he has to win moderates and a lot of moderate voters who probably voted for trump in 20 16 are going to look and see like this guy is in a met a constant legal mess now, uh, and is not you know does no longer has the image of like world beating um entrepreneur and you know uh business mogul and and TV star. You know, there's a lot more to his image now. <laughs> um, and and the yeah, this legal trouble is, is not helping him, even if it looks vindictive.
1: Um, yeah, so so I'm going to ask a extra question about the lawfare campaign about uh, against Trump and how it's playing politically but Charlie any uh, gut instincts on the merits of this charge uh, underlying charge and defamation case against Trump
0: I'm not entirely sure I do think that the punishment is excessive there seems to be a trend I know the appeals processes often whittle down the the millions or hundreds of millions, in one case billions of dollars that are owed. I find this a tough one to talk about because it's not clean or neat. It is probably true that this case got as far as it did because Donald Trump is involved. It is probably true that the damages were excessive. It is also not an accident or a coincidence that Donald Trump keeps finding himself in these positions. There's this argument you see on the right. Whomever we nominate or elevate, they'll go after. Well, yeah, to some extent. But they can't fabricate to this extent the opportunities that they have to persecute. And... It seems to me likely that there is something here, albeit probably not as much as was determined and then punished in that civil
2: trial.
1: Next question to you, Maddie Kearns. First, the lawfare campaign against Donald Trump is now clearly having already a political effect and working, yes or no? Um, yes. MBD.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's draining resources and repelling uh, moderates, and um, even as it, secu- it, it further secures him at the top of the Republican Party. Charlie. Yeah,
0: it's draining resources, and it's the worst sort of gaffe, I use that broadly, in that it confirms people's pre-existing conceptions, negative conceptions, of the person in question.
1: Yep, it's uh, as we saw in these uh, FEC reports. It is draining resources. Obviously, it's, it's draining time and attention. That hasn't hurt him in the primaries. Actually, helped him, but that won't necessarily hold true in the general election. And just you know, being entangled in this dispute with this woman, it, it can't can't in any way help him with one of his major demographic vulnerabilities in the fall, which is his standing with women. With that. Let's hear from our second sponsor this episode. The world would be a better, freer, and happier place if constitutional protections for private property were taken just a tad more seriously. That's according to our friends over at the Institute for Justice who have just begun releasing a new season of their legal history podcast, Bound by Oath. Bound by Oath tells the story of how the Supreme Court has cleared the way for government officials to abuse property rights, to trespass on private land without a warrant, to restrict peaceful and productive uses of property, to seize and keep property, without sufficient justification, and much more. Featuring interviews not only with scholars and litigators, but also with the real life people behind some of the Supreme Court's most momentous property rights decisions, the new season explores the history behind today's civil rights battle. So plug Bound by Oath into wherever you get your podcasts and start with episode one. That's Bound by Oath. Please check it out. So since we ran a little long with the discussion of social media, I'm just going to go exit question right off the bat with our third topic here, which is these DOJ prosecutions of these pro-life activists in Tennessee under what is called the FACE Act, Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. The uh, punishment for what was a a peaceful uh, protest seems wildly out of proportion, but that gets to the merits of this exit question to you. First, Maddie, rate your level of outrage at these prosecutions. From zero, doesn't really bother you. This is the law, how the system works. Ten, this is a a shame and a disgrace.
3: Uh, it's It's an eight or nine. I mean, I think we put it well in our editorial, where we just said that they're using this category, legal category of obstruction um, very broadly. So in the Tennessee case, the uh, pro-life, pro-lifers were in front of the door, but nobody tried to enter the door. And so we don't know whether they, they would have stopped people from entering the door. This is in the, similar to how um, the, the law is cynically used in the United Kingdom and I think other places in Europe where harassment is so broadly defined to include people who are standing praying outside an abortion clinic. It's also infuriating because of the double standard. So not long ago, in a recent episode of this podcast, we were talking about the pro-Palestinian uh, protesters who blocked um, a major bridge in New York City or have blocked access to, to airports. And you don't see them being prosecuted with this level of ferocity. Um, and so it is
2: outrageous. Hey, um, Yeah, it's about a nine. I mean, it really reminds me, uh, it's the new version of the Clinton administration using RICO to go after pro-life protesters, which they did in uh, the 1990s. Uh, this is a an abuse of what the of the law. Um, they're they're wildly conflating they're conflating uh being in front of a clinic with obstructing an entrance to a clinic. And then throwing the book at grandmothers who are you know silently praying or singing hymns, uh, it's it's totally abusive. And they've all but admitted. I mean, the the assistant um, attorney general admitted basically that this was retaliation for the fall of Roe. So it's it's totally out of line.
1: Charlie,
0: yeah, it's preposterous, Calvin ball when they alike a given protest or even riot, we're told that the First Amendment is at stake, that violence even is the language of the unheard. And we're asked what those who conducted are supposed to do when they stand alone against Goliath. And then when it's pro-lifers, they're prosecuted for obstruction. It's Calvin Yeah,
1: I'm with everyone else. <clears throat> it's It's way up there. 8, 9, 10 territory with that. Let me pause, do a quick plug for NR+, Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. If you liked the discussion earlier on social media and we find generally what people like most about this podcast is forceful disagreement, I would urge you to sign up for NR+. Plus. Debate is one of the great aspects of NR. We are not afraid of it. We have a lot of sincere, intelligent, People who enjoy debate think it's uh, it's uh, fun, for, for, for one, but two, really believe in I- ideas and think that the clash of ideas is clarifying and helps to um, work our way towards the truth. So every time we have a disagreement like that on the podcast, you're getting like a little window to what a lot of editorial meetings are about. And I submit to you, there are not many publications that embrace debate the way National Review does. So that's just one of many reasons to sign up for NR Plus. So if you're not already a member, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Media readers as a member of NR Plus. Let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you've been reading a commentary on the Gospel of Mark.
2: Yeah, I've been um, really taken by uh, a book called Loosing the Lion uh, by Professor Dr. Leroy. Zenga, and um, it's just a, a very great um, commentary on the Gospel of Mark, which is the short uh, Gospel, and which was uh, largely denigrated by biblical scholars for uh, many years, saying it was just um, uh, an unstrung uh, set of pearls. Um, but uh, Zenga shows that. Uh, I think very conclusively in his book that if you use just normal literary methods of analyzing the gospel, plot, conflict, resolution, etc., um, its its theological depth is really revealed, and um, and it's just great to see this kind of recovery of um, this kind of scholarship after about a century and a half of bullshit. Frankly.
1: So, Maddie, you hosted a Robert Burns supper, raising the question what is a Robert Burns supper?
3: Yeah, so you Americans obviously have a lot of public holidays. You have July 4th and Presidents Day and and a lot of others. Uh, in Scotland, we have um, St. Andrew's Day, which is November 30th. And then we also have uh, the commemoration of our national poet um, on January 25th. So, Robert Burns is born January 25th, 1759. And you may know him from "Old Lang Syne. He wrote that um, and he also wrote a bunch of other things. So we invite people around and we had um, a lot of whiskey. and people, um, all of our guests, except one who was English, was, were American. So they all had to go at reciting poems in the Scots dialect, which was a lot of fun. And we served um, haggis pizza. So uh, it was real haggis, yeah. you can't get real haggis here, um, FDA friends upon it, and so we did a, a sort of like ground lamb with oats and spices and served it as a pizza topping uh, yeah. with whiskey sauce. So yeah, yeah it was a great, great, fun, fun evening and um, yeah, just leaning into the Scottishness of it all.
1: So Charlie, you're, you're not just an internet hippie, you might be a, a hippie generally because you guys have been raising butterflies. That's
0: right. This was a birthday present for my six-year-old, for his sixth birthday. The company that sent the kits, they essentially send you a bunch of caterpillars, sent two batches by accident. And you can't really send caterpillars back. So we had a whole bunch in this big net, and we've been raising them, and then they go into their cocoons, and now they're starting to come out. And in dribs and drabs, they fly off. We take them outside and open the net at the top. So we we have eight left. Uh, two have gone out into the broader world. I think the best part is that my six-year-old named each of them after a Jacksonville Jaguars player and somehow managed <laughs> to remember which was which. So I would suddenly hear, you know, oh, Zay Jones is flying around. Oh, look at, <laughs> look at Trevor Lawrence. He's coming out of the
1: cocoon. Awesome. So I mentioned Masters of the Air last ep. I listened to a number of podcasts now with the screenwriter and one last night at School of War, which I'm a big fan of. I mentioned before with Donald Miller, who wrote the book Masters of Air that the, the series is is uh, loosely based on. And this guy is just, uh, if you're all interested in World War II or uh, a- aviation, you got to listen to this podcast and I, I was joking with Aaron I'm a little bit of a texting buddy with Aaron that Aaron asked like one, two questions I think the first 25 minutes. This, this guy just talks and you know sometimes someone who just talks they could be dr- the drone and you you know you're done you can't, can't handle it but a- everything he said was, was absolutely uh, fascinating I obviously knows his, his uh, subject backwards and forwards. With that it's time for our editor's picks. MBD! What's your pick?
2: Um, My pick, this is so weird. Um, I wrote earlier in the week that I was getting tired of Taylor Swift talk, but uh, I really liked Dan McLaughlin's piece on why Taylor Swift is reaching her zenith of popularity now because it was just such a competent and thoughtful dive into the dynamics of pop culture and how, you know, why particularly – uh, the pandemic and other events are kind of driving this insane demand for tickets to her concerts now, and um, and the broadness of her appeal. And I, I just thought it was really, uh, just a really sharp bit of cult- pop culture analysis. Yeah, the Taylor Swift
1: thing was like a classic thirty-six hour news cycle, right? <laughs> it's like it was it was all anyone could talk about for thirty-six hours, and then and then you know six hours after that, you are like, ah, oh, this is. Uh, this is old news, but Dan is just just so good at so many levels of providing a uh, comprehensive and authoritative take on things. Maddie Kearns, what's your pick?
3: Um, my pick's actually your piece, Rich. Um, kids shouldn't be on social media at all. No,
1: it's- no, don't raise this again, Maddie. We've got to end this podcast sometime and soon. I'm-
3: I was going to say, Charlie speaks very uh, persuasively and raised a number of points that I, I now want to go away and and, and research to defend or, or, well, I'm open to being, you know,
1: that there isn't no a <laughs> I know. We're all dug into that. our position. But, but,
3: but I will, I will say that there's something on an instinctual level where I was reading your piece and I was like, yes. You know, if I if I had it printed out, I would have written yes.
1: And <laughs> <laughs> so. Thank you. you. Written yes and read in Reading? Yes, of course. <laughs> Charlie, what's your pick?
0: I'll confess this is partly because the headline made me laugh, but Noah Rothman's post, They'll Never See It Coming, which contains a description of Joe Biden's vacillating and announcing that he has called a committee to form a committee to decide what to decide what to do in Iran, is a great pithy little explanation of why if you're going to act on the world stage, you have to do it. You can't talk about it for a week beforehand. And if you do that, it ends up making you less safe than you would have been if you'd never acted at all.
1: So my pick is by our own Sarah Shuddy, who wrote one of these kind of uh, Americana lifestyle <laughs> type essays we feature in a new monthly magazine. Charlie inaugurated this by scamming their editorial process to, to get a trip over to London to watch the, the Jaguars play with his dad and and Sarah has used it to write about her flying career, including opening with a, a landing that nearly made her cry. So what had you so upset, Sarah?
4: Oh my gosh, it was awful. <laughs> the whole the whole ride, had the whole flight had just been really bad. I had been bumped all over the place. There was some turbulence. I couldn't hold my altitude correctly. And then we came back in to land and he was like, you have to get these landings. And I was like, I know. And I was trying to... I can't can't remember where I was, which levee I was over top of because the runway has two ends. um, And just the way the wind was that day, we were coming in and I was like, okay, I'm going to nail this spot. And I just slammed the plane down onto the pavement. It was so bad. I cannot believe the nose wheel didn't collapse.
1: Yeah, it's usually a bad sign when when your pilot uh, is is at, at the brink of tears.
4: Yeah. Well, I didn't cry. I actually never cried the entire time. I didn't cry at (laughs) any point when I was flying, at any point during all of the studying I did. I was really proud of this fact. So I just, I was very stoic about that.
1: Well, congratulations on the piece. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National View podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National View magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the aforementioned incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to How the World Works and Bound by Oath. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.